This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Hello, this is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Dan Hannum, the Chief Operating Officer of Zen Ledger, a crypto tax software similar to TurboTax. Dan is here today to help us understand the evolving world of taxes and the impact on crypto, DeFi, and NFTs. Dan, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Before we launch into it, I want to give two quick disclaimers to our listeners. First, this conversation should not be considered investment, legal, or tax advice. And second, throughout the show, we will be referencing the U.S. tax system. With that in mind, Dan, can we just kick off with a framework for how the U.S. tax code currently is structured as it relates to crypto? On the U.S. side, there's some interesting parameters. And really, the first one was back in 2014, which seems wild. There's still people that get into crypto today that are like, well, the IRS didn't give any guidance. It's like, well, they did. You just don't like it. The first guidance that the IRS really put out was in 2014. And essentially, that's what created a lot of the mess around crypto taxes. And really what that distinction was, was that the IRS was going to view crypto assets as property, somewhat similar to stocks. And really, that's what has created a lot of the ambiguity in crypto taxes. And what I mean by that is, essentially, there's three main buckets that you can look at. We can dive as deep as we want. On a high level, going from dollars into crypto is not a taxable event. So you can put as many dollars into whatever asset, assuming it has a fiat on-ramp, as you want, and, and hold it for as long as you want. There's no taxable event. Then you have crypto to crypto. And this is really where a lot of people start to get thrown off, going from Bitcoin to Ethereum, or Ethereum into USDC, or even going from USDC into USDT, a stablecoin, has a taxable event. And then the third bucket is going from crypto back into dollars, which I think is more intuitive for everyone. It's like, okay, so crypto, I have dollars. I probably had a gain or loss. That one's intuitive. So the three main buckets are those. And that's really where like the rise of DeFi and NFTs have become challenging to keep track of. It's because there's so many items within that transaction that you need to really be aware of as you're continuing to buy NFTs or to buy DeFi assets. There's lots of ways that you can view an asset. But I guess one thing I would have thought about is the IRS could have determined crypto was a security. They could have determined it was a currency, but they chose it as a property. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, even a commodity, there's a few different classifications that could have gone on. But yeah, the property one was kind of a big item and really has what's led to the current IRS tax code and a lot of the craziness with US-based crypto taxes. For a simple example, the first one that you kind of said most people don't understand that when you use dollars to buy crypto, that's not a taxable event. Mm -hmm. You go on Coinbase and you buy some Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever, but you use your US dollars, you wire it over, you buy it, no worries there. If, if that's all you've ever done, you have no issues. You got it. Yep. And you can go, you know, as many dollars as whatever crypto asset you want, you know, taxable event on that. And then your second example, let's say you have Bitcoin and you want to convert your Bitcoin to Solana, for example. I believe this isn't true, but I want to dig into know why that when you have two pieces of property, there's this idea of an in-kind transaction. Why going from crypto to crypto do I have to pay taxes? 
the IRS came out in early 2016 and then reiterated again this year that like-kind exchanges are not applicable within crypto. And that's really where like most of the fun part of what our software does for you comes from. So going from one crypto asset to another, essentially the way that the IRS uses it is let's say you buy Ethereum and you trade it for Solana. Essentially what the IRS sees is that you bought Ethereum, then you sold the Ethereum back into dollars, use the proceeds of those dollars to buy Solana. And so essentially you are disposing of a piece of property. And that's really where it creates a lot of the headaches within crypto taxes. So like-kind exchanges are not applicable. There's a lot of things that don't necessarily make a ton of sense with crypto taxes that the IRS has put out. So you can imagine us as well as the participants in the ecosystem kind of have to go along with it. The only really thing that is an advantage for crypto is the wash sale rule. And we can get into like year-end tax loss harvesting and things like that. But because these assets are not considered securities, you can sell an asset that's down 10% and buy it back on the same day and there's no wash sale rule on that. That's like the one saving grace and one perk that you do have with crypto. Most of the other ones are things that you would think are common sense. I put in dollars into crypto, whatever I do in crypto is whatever it is. And then when I go back into dollars, I have a gain or a loss. But because the IRS treats these things as property, every step along the way of going from one asset to another creates a taxable event that would have you know an original cost basis and then a gain or loss pending the sale price. We'll get to wash sales. Just to further that example, you had three, but it really is two, right? You either go from dollars to crypto in the IRS's eyes, even if you go crypto to crypto, you're really going dollars, crypto, crypto dollars back to crypto. So they're going to tax you when you move between assets. Another question, just to clarify, is you go from dollars to Ethereum, and then with your Ethereum, you buy an NFT. What happens there from a tax basis? The way the IRS views NFTs are just a form of crypto. So essentially, like an NFT is going to be the same thing as going from Ethereum into Bitcoin. And even going from an NFT into another NFT is going to be the same thing as going from Ethereum to Bitcoin. And then going from NFT back into dollars is going to be the same thing as going from Ethereum back into dollars. Even though there's like a difference in the nature of the asset and the fungibility of the asset and the unlocks that the asset provides, essentially the IRS treats them all the same. Naturally, we're like, the simplicity does come in crypto, whether it is DeFi or whether it is NFTs. Essentially, each asset is viewed as the same thing from the IRS's perspective. So to answer your question specifically, going from crypto into an NFT is going to be a taxable event. Going from NFT into an NFT, taxable event. NFT back into Ethereum. Let's say you're selling it back to the ETH, taxable event. NFT back into dollars, taxable event on that as well. So when I buy a stock today, I have tax lots. And I can say, okay, I bought this stock at five different prices. And when I sell it, I can say, okay, if I'm going to sell, I want to sell at the highest lot level for a cost basis. How do you do that with cryptocurrency? Are you able to assign, in this example that we're doing right now, cash to crypto, crypto to NFT? And I have multiple crypto transactions. How do I assign which cost basis I want for that transaction? There's typically a few different ways to look at that. And the most common would be FIFO, which would be first in, first out. And then you have a few other ones to look at as well, which would be HIFO, highest in, first out, LIFO, last in, first out, and then specific ID. And typically, the most conservative and most widely recognized would be FIFO, which essentially would mean that the first asset that you bought would be the first one coming out. So if I bought Bitcoin in 2017 for 100 bucks, and then I sell Bitcoin for Ethereum today, under that accounting method, your first one in would be your first one out. So you could have a higher gain. So typically, anyone that's been in crypto for quite some time, LIFO or FIFO are going to be better methods to minimize your capital gains because they're taking in from either the highest inventory in or your last inventory in versus your first inventory in. And then you have specific ID. Typically, specific ID 
is more of an aggressive approach to taking that. And that's something I imagine part of the disclaimers that we'll have on this episode is consult with a tax professional and, and seek legal advice. But if you're going to take a specific ID approach, you definitely want to have a tax professional signing off that they're okay with that approach. But typically FIFO, LIFO, and HIFO are, are all kind of fair game. And then the other thing to be mindful of is that essentially once you stick with an accounting method or once you select the accounting method, you need to stick with that one moving forward. What I mean by that is, let's say in 2017, FIFO is the best accounting method for you. It produces the lowest amount of short-term and long-term capital gains. But let's say in 2018, LIFO is. You can't switch between accounting methods per year. You have to stay with one. If you change in the future, you have to amend previous returns to be under that new accounting method. So hopefully that gives a little bit more context to the question. It's really helpful. And just so I can be clear, is specific ID how normal securities tax lots work where you're selecting which tax lot you want for a cost basis perspective? Pretty much. You're specifying the actual lot on a per lot basis versus FIFO, LIFO, and HIFO, which are basically like aggregated lots, if that makes sense. So the FIFO would cover like from first to last and those types of things where a specific ID, you are selecting that. This is a cost basis I'm assigning to that lot. And so as someone who's trying to start looking at this, pulling the data, it's interesting to me because where everything's on chain in some ways, you'd say, well, someone should figure this out. When I look at the exchanges, I'm curious from the exchanges where you pull data, how are they structured today and what has changed over time with the exchanges and tax reporting? We're still very early on in crypto and that goes for any topic that essentially we're going to talk about. From like an exchange reporting perspective, we're still so early on that there's not a universal standard. Some exchanges provide APIs. Some provide APIs that aren't so great. <laughs> some that provide APIs and CSV files. Some that only provide CSV files. So that's really where like the magic of Zenledger or crypto so- tax software comes into play is being able to aggregate all of these sources into one place. The challenging part about the centralized exchange is that typically the cost basis does not track across exchanges and across wallets very effectively. What I mean by that is traditionally, if you're using Schwab, TD Ameritrade, you can swap assets between the brokerages pretty easily. The 1099 that you get at the end of the year is pretty accurate. It covers what you need. The hard part within crypto is, let's say I buy that Ethereum or Bitcoin on Coinbase. And I send that Bitcoin or Ethereum into a hardware wallet, like a Ledger or a Trezor. Essentially, from that moment, the cost basis from that asset is going to be not transitioned over into Ledger or Trezor. And then typically what will happen is you'll then take that wallet and connect it to a DeFi protocol or connect it to another exchange because exchange A only has a limited amount of assets and you want this other asset that's only available on this exchange. So the basis tracking between exchanges and between wallets becomes extremely difficult. And we've seen like a weird bifurcation of different ways that exchanges have been looking at this space. We really started to see a few years ago, Coinbase and others provide like 1099 miscellaneous forms, which typically only cover your income. Then they started providing 1099Ks, which are not really a great approach to looking at crypto because it only shows your proceeds. And then now they're starting to morph into like 1099Bs. But because the average user within crypto is not just using one exchange, they're using four or five different exchanges, seven to 10 different wallets, multiple different blockchains. You need a platform and a tool to aggregate all that data together and provide comprehensive reports like your 8949, like your Schedule 1, your Schedule D, your Schedule C. And we've seen a lot of issues with that in the past with these exchanges that are reporting basically your proceeds as your number. And then the IRS comes calling saying, hey, Coinbase says you have 100,000 in proceeds and your 8949 says you have 40,000 in gains. And it's because that basis is not being tracked across your exchanges and across your wallets. But essentially, we're very early where exchanges are not on the same reporting requirement. 
And we may see that with the infrastructure bill. You may see that the 1099B becomes a universal reporting requirement and exchanges need to be able to talk to each other to track cost basis. But even with that, most of what people are investing in now or what people are getting into the ecosystem now with are NFTs and DeFi, largely DAOs. That typically happens through a mobile wallet, a desktop wallet, hardware wallet. And so you're always still going to have this inefficiency in tracking across these exchanges until you can aggregate that all that activity together. And that's really what Zenledger can help do. Just to give some context around the exchanges and the IRS, I believe the IRS sued Coinbase. Is that right? Correct. What was the IRS suing Coinbase over? Essentially, what was happening is that Coinbase was not reporting assets and customer accounts to the IRS. And basically, the IRS was largely seeing that Coinbase was reporting you have 10 million users, 20 million, 30 million, 40 million, 50 million, whatever. Now it's just like, well, we have 3,000 people filing, 3,300 people filing. The rise of innovation and platforms and people coming into the space didn't match up with the receipts that the IRS was seeing. At that time, Coinbase wasn't providing any sort of tax reporting to their clients. They weren't providing them documents that happened on the exchange, and they weren't providing them anything to go report from there. So Coinbase really started to provide the 1099K a few years ago. And essentially what the 1099K does is it reports the total proceeds, which would be the sales value or withdrawals as a single number. And historically, the 1099K was used by credit card processors. It's pretty misleading towards crypto. It's not the total amount of your actual gains. And the IRS is really getting all of these 1099Ks, then reviewing the 8949s as discussed earlier and seeing numbers not match up, kind of false flags, very problematic. And Coinbase basically said, we're done with the 1099K reporting. And Coinbase was going to issue 1099 miscellaneous. And then that started to come into other issues. And then 1099B was like, okay, this is what we should be filing. So in essence, the initial IRS lawsuit against Coinbase was for not providing any reporting. And then Coinbase was kind of like, okay, well, we should do the 1099K. And that started to become problematic for a lot of customers. If you started to see like CP2000 letters, essentially that's what the IRS would send to investors where their 8949 did match up with Coinbase. But their 8949 was actually like the center of truth because that aggregated all their changes, all their wallets, all their cost bases, their gains or loss, things like that. Whereas Coinbase is only reporting what happened on the exchange. We've seen the IRS get directly involved with Coinbase and other exchanges for lack of reporting. We've now seen the IRS and SEC start to get after DeFi protocols. So you started to see like the Uniswap SEC and IRS probe from a few months ago and somewhat similar. Like the IRS started to see that Uniswap provided a Uni airdrop token to users of the protocol. And the vast majority of those people were not reporting any of that activity. So how can Uniswap start to provide actual crypto tax reports? So yeah, we've seen a increased enforcement from the IRS. And largely, the exchanges have been somewhat willfully ignorant to the fact that their clients need these reports and they need to use software to be able to accurately itemize what's going on and provide completed reports. You mentioned DeFi investigations. And I guess one thing to try to give a summary, when someone's providing liquidity and they're in a pool, they have lots of limit orders outstanding. And so I've thought about this before that hypothetically, there's lots of transactions that if, if someone asked you, like, tell me every time you bought and sold, that seems to be, I don't even know if it's possible to report that. So when someone does a DeFi transaction, and, and I'm taking it from the perspective of this person's trying their best to pay the IRS exactly what they owe, how do you think about DeFi and how you report that to the IRS? The nice thing that we talked about, you kind of mentioned earlier, as far as transparency into transaction data, it's like it all lives on chain. So it's very easy to follow what happened, what went in, what went out, what was the income earned, and what were the capital gains along the way. If listeners of the program have ever used Etherscan themselves, like it's 
very easy. Like you literally type in, you know, zero X one, two, three, and it'll pull up exactly every transaction that's ever gone in and out of the wallet, the timestamp, the amount, the gas fee, everything. What crypto tax software does is allows you to ingest all that data from the on-chain data, mix it in with your off-chain data through a Coinbase or an FTX or Gemini or whatever, and then provide these completed tax reports that can show, okay, that amount of Bitcoin is bought on Coinbase, sent to your ledger, from ledger to Binance, Binance into ETH, ETH into MetaMask, MetaMask into Compound or Uniswap, Uniswap along the way you earned interest, which is now on your Schedule 1. The token was pulled back out, traded back in for Bitcoin, sent back to your ledger, and then back to Coinbase. If you look at like the Coinbase perspective, they see the initial buy and they see Bitcoin coming back in. So if you bought one Bitcoin and 10 Bitcoin came back in and say, well, what did you do to get the other nine? And that's really where the software comes into play is it allows you to aggregate all of that into one automated platform that looks at all of your exchanges, all of your wallets, all of your DeFi protocols, all of your NFTs, and looks at everything holistically and provides these completed tax reports that take into account everything that you've done. So the ability to really track DeFi is somewhat easy Initially, from like a theory perspective, it seems logical, but then you know it's making sure that everything comes in correctly. The cash fees, the cost basis, and where the ETH came from, and those type of things. And that's what the software automates as well. If you're a listener and you've ever heard of EtherScan or BSD Scan or whatever, and you've entered in your own address, you can see a historical record of your addresses and, and your activity. You mentioned airdrops, and that's been quite the topic lately because some of these airdrops have been quite large. When you get an airdrop, how do you think about that from a tax perspective? For the listeners, an airdrop currently means I've been using a protocol, I've been interacting with something, and then just from your use case, a token is delivered to you. So technically, you didn't pay anything for it. You got it from using it. How do you think about that from a tax basis? Airdrops, whether they're like traditional token airdrops or even NFT airdrops, same philosophy. You know, you can be airdropped an NFT for holding an NFT saw that with Board Ape Dot Club and Mutant Apes. But essentially, like the way that the IRS views an airdrop is that it would be income at the time of receipt. Whether I have an airdrop token ABC and I receive 100 ABC tokens and they're all worth a dollar, I'd have $100 in income at the time of that airdrop. Simple as it gets really on the, uh, the airdrop side and largely the way that the IRS views income would coalesce around airdrops, staking, mining, liquidity pools, even centralized incomes. If you're not going DeFi and using like a Celsius or BlockFi or Nexo or Voyager and putting in ETH and earning 8% or 9% or whatever, all that that you're earning is just income and all gets slotted on your schedule one. So from like a high level, the airdrop is just income at the time of receipt and is based on your ordinary income tax rate and would be reported on your schedule one. On that idea of a receipt, just to be clear, some of these airdrops, they just show up you can get, like, well, we'll do the token for a mutant. You would go onto a website and then you could claim your token. Is there any difference from a tax perspective of having the right to get something versus having claimed it? From the IRS perspective, no. And I think that's a large thing that can encapsulate DeFi and NFTs and DAO taxes is that the IRS has not came out and provided clear guidance on how these things are being viewed. So essentially, what you have to do is take a conservative approach around how other things are being viewed. Going back to the question around airdrops, there is an IRS tax code, page one, paragraph two, around NFT airdrops. But because there's guidance around airdrops in general, it's very likely that the tax rules of airdrops apply whether these tokens are fungible or non-fungible. So essentially what we have to do is take a very conservative approach around existing guidance and kind of map it to these new protocols. And that's something that I think we work very strongly with. On Zenledger, you know, we have government contracts with the IRS, their criminal investigation unit and their civil investigation unit to help them understand crypto taxes and collect some of that revenue. 
so we're fortunate enough to have kind of a seat at the table of educating these regulators around what is this stuff and how should it be treated. There's other platforms like Coin Center and Boxing Association and things like that that are putting up really strong fights for a lot of the infrastructure bill language. So I think in general, like big misconception within crypto is you want to go here to evade your taxes. And it's like, I've never been in another industry where crypto taxes is so talked about every single second of the day than this industry. In reality, most people want to pay their taxes. They just want to understand what is this? How do I pay? What software can I use to automate this process? And what are like the rules? And I think for a large portion of our industry, like we just want to have very clear guidelines from the IRS, very clear regulations. And then once you have that, go operate in whatever fashion you want. If you want to go do something this way, do it. But you should have the ability to understand what that is. So a lot of what we have to do is take some of these older guidance from the IRS and apply it towards new primitives like DeFi and NFTs and DAOs and take a conservative best guess around how this would be applied. I want to get to two topics. It's year-end. People are talking a lot about tax loss harvesting. The market just happens to be down today. So if I bought Ethereum yesterday for $4,000 and today it's $3,900, talk to me about what I can do because of the wash sale rules you mentioned earlier with a trade like that. The wash sale rule is interesting. Traditionally with stocks, you have to have meaningfulness to your transaction, meaning that you can't just sell a stock for selling the stock to buy it back. And you kind of have to have substance to the transaction. And cryptocurrency investors have long been able to take advantage of a tax loophole that's beneficial in claiming capital losses. As you mentioned, stocks and securities have the Washoe rule, which states that you have to wait 30 days between selling an asset and buying it back. And this prevents people from making transactions that have what we talked about earlier, the no economic substance, just to get like a tax benefit. But because crypto assets are not classified as securities, this rule hasn't applied to cryptocurrency. Lawmakers are currently attempting to change this for 2022, largely in the infrastructure bill, and apply the Washoe rule to cryptocurrency, but nothing has been enacted yet. Even if Washoe rules do eventually apply to crypto, selling Ether a loss and quickly buying BTC would not violate the rule because, according to the IRS, they're separate assets. There's kind of some gamesmanship here. But essentially, in your example, and there's a lot of variables that go into your example, and that's something that we always encounter with like NFTs. People are like, well, if I bought an NFT for 10 ETH and I sell it for 9 ETH, then like, I'm cool. The good thing about your example is that you use dollars. And typically, the dollars is what matters in the tax loss harvesting aspect and what the IRS is going to require you to pay. So that's what you should be really focused on. So if, if you're buying that Ethereum for 4000 and then let's say, whatever, the next day it drops down to 3800 you bought the asset for 4000 It's now trading at 3800 You could sell that asset, um, lock in the $200 loss, and then buy back the asset on the same day, which would reestablish your cost basis for that ETH. The nice part about crypto is that you can take advantage of these wash sale rules to harvest your losses and then still retain the same amount of ownership over the asset, which is vastly different than what you can do with stocks. Another topic I've found interesting from people discussing is treating yourself like an individual, a hobby, or a business. What are the different levels for people that are doing this or starting to take up more and more of their time and it's becoming a profession? What are their options from a tax basis of should they structure an LLC? I know this isn't advice. It's just a general idea of why are people turning themselves into companies? There's a few different things to like be aware of. And typically, like a single member LLC is, does not have any tax benefit to it. It has liability benefit to it. Let's say Dan, the trader, and, and I'm trading assets left and right, and I Dan's trading company LLC. That doesn't do anything for me from a tax perspective. So in order to actually have an actual perspective, you have to have a multi-member partnership or a C-corp or S-corp. 
And that's something that, you know, our team of tax professionals can help with as far as the entity formation if people are looking into that. The benefit there is that typically corporate tax rates are lower than individual tax rates. And what you can do if you actually have an enterprise is to start to use some of those rates to your advantage. What I mean by that is typically with individual, you'll have short-term capital gains, long-term capital gains. We also have income tax rates. And typically anything at your short-term tax rate is going to be based around the same ordinary income tax rate either way. That's typically anywhere between 15 and 40%. Long-term capital gains rates typically are 0, 15, and 20. And so as you can imagine, if you're on the very high end of the spectrum, 20 is a lot better than 40. So even holding your assets for longer than a year can start to make a big difference in your ability. But if you're a day trader, then it's very hard to hold those assets for a year. There's various ways throughout crypto to really put yourself in a better perspective to meet your tax liability at the end of the year. If you're going to go through a business perspective, you're really going to want to make sure you're talking to a tax attorney or a tax professional on helping you get set up with the entity and making sure that the entity is squared away come tax time is really kind of the best of guidance that I can provide, not tax advice, to be clear. (laughs) I don't think you should get your tax advice from Twitter, but I've seen some really funny examples. People have DM me questions about this. One of them was you have a hard wallet and you paid taxes on it uh, a year ago and then you lose the hard wallet and you don't have access to it. There's a question over, can you write that off as a loss? Uh, the boating accidents would yes. come into play. <laughs> it's either the board apes getting stolen or the boating accidents seem to be the, uh, yeah. the fun tax question. The amount of ledgers and treasures that are sitting at the bottom of the ocean is wild. Generally with loss, theft, and, and worthless airdrops, there's different ways to report lost, hacked, or even stolen crypto, depending on your specific situation. And as you can imagine, this should always be reviewed case by case. Claims of airdrops being worthless should also be reviewed individually. But typically, writing off capital losses. And when we talk about capital gains, aside from ordinary income, you're really only taxed when you're actually making money from crypto trades. So capital losses are subtracted from your gains, and they can even be used to offset a certain level of ordinary income. But there are legitimate and not so legitimate ways to realize losses for a tax benefit. So like scenario one, you buy an NFT at its opening price of 15000 Eight months later, the trading price has dropped to 1500 You don't expect it to go any higher. You can choose to sell the NFT and realize your loss. This would create a capital loss of 13500 if you held the asset short term. And then the 13500 would be subtracted from your short-term gains. If you held it long-term, the amount would be subtracted from your long-term gains. And this is like a normal, legitimate capital loss. Scenario two, let's say two friends, Bob and Susie, come up with a great plan to lower Bob's tax bill. Susie creates a single NFT and sells it to Bob for 50000 Bob sells it to someone else for the fair market value of 2000 And then Sam claims a capital loss of 48000 I think I just mixed up a bunch of names. So in theory, person A... It, just, person it sounds like tax fraud. A and B, names. yeah. A and B, this is tax fraud. So you don't want to do that. We talked about the wash sale rule and things like that. So that's definitely important to be aware of from a wash sale rule perspective. Things like lost assets or stolen assets, it really depends on like how the asset was lost or stolen. Typically negligence, which would mean like I fat fingered a sale price. We see this all the time, especially with Board 8 Got Clubs that happened this week. Someone went to sell their Board 8 Got Club for 300000 they sold it for 3000 That doesn't entitle you to write off that you lost 297000 Bought it for a price, you sold it for a price, and probably have a gain on that transaction. So you probably bought it for less than 3000 Negligence typically does not qualify as a scam or like lost asset. You also have assets that have literally gone to zero that can sometimes be written off as a capital loss. Most of those things should be discussed with a tax professional around the circumstances with the asset. Some can be marked as lost. 
Some can be marked as stolen. And then typically, if you're getting into stolen perspective, you need to be very cautious of marking things as stolen and typically having some type of reporting around how it was stolen. On the stolen side, that depends on a few things. Like if you fell victim to a phishing scam, it doesn't necessarily mean it was stolen. You were negligent in owning your asset and provided someone with your private key and they took your asset. That's not really like a scam. You were scammed. It was still kind of your fault for clicking on the scam. Then you have, you know, other assets that can have insurance on them. So you have assets that are typically insured from like protocol risk. So you've looked at a Nexus Mutual or something like that. You can typically provide protocol insurance around the asset, which will provide you insurance if that asset trends to zero or things like that. So the loss and silliness, I think people try to abuse sometimes, especially now with illiquid JPEGs or illiquid NFTs. We see this all the time. I bought this NFT for one ETH. It's now trading at zero. No one wants to buy it off from me. I want to market as loss so I can take the one ETH hit. Well, that's not really how it works. In order to harvest the loss, you need to sell the NFT, whether that's back into dollars or back into crypto. And even if you sell it for $1, then that helps. You can't just say like, I bought it, it's worthless. And now I don't want it anymore. And I want to reduce my taxes. So there are some like variables that go into play here. And if you're going to take a more like aggressive stance, you know, once again, definitely recommend speaking with a tax professional around the stance that you're taking, make sure that they're on board with the way you're going to report that activity. On the illiquid JPEG side, I've heard of people trying to send to a burn address as a proof of destruction or a proof of it is worthless. Is that a form of a legitimate loss? There's an argument that it could be. In order to have your asset marked as a loss, you need to have an arm's length transaction and not have ownership of the asset anymore. Those two criteria would be met on the, the ability to send that to a burn address. Once again, there's not clear guidance. It's like, yes, if you do that, that's valid. You can obviously make the argument that it should be valid according to the current tax code. So once again, like an opportunity, if you're selling to a burn address, what we would likely recommend is to probably put it on a marketplace instead. So put it up on OpenSea and have someone else go buy it from you. And that's hard because if it's you know illiquid and there's no market, then no one's going to buy it. But you're much better off selling that asset for a penny or a dollar. There's now a lot of harvesters of NFTs. You know, you kind of bring in like the yield farming to NFTs that are like literally going through an open sea and looking at anything under a dollar and just buying it. Like they're just going to buy them all and hope that they all go up and become like a NFT. Like we buy your junk.com. That's, yeah, that's basically. Yeah. yeah. Like if you don't want it anymore, we'll come buy it off you. So, and to recap, try to sell it, list it on OpenSea for a dollar, a penny. And most of the time, someone's going to buy it from you. And that's going to put you in a much better perspective than sending it to a burn address and then trying to argue that you didn't have control of the address or things like that. So that would be the guidance there. For you and the team at Zen Ledger, I'm curious to know more about core customers. Is this a lot of retail? Are there institutional or corporations that engage with you? What's kind of the percentage breakdown of who are your customer base? We started the company in 2017, focusing on the retail audience and made a concerted effort to really focus on that audience initially. We talked about my experience back in 15 and 16 and and with few and far companies in between. So we didn't really think we could build a sustainable business back then on just being an enterprise-only solution. So we really wanted to focus on retail and essentially be like the TurboTax for retail investors. Give retail investors the ability to integrate their exchanges, their wallets, their on-chain and off-chain activity and provide them all the tax reports that they need. That's really where we started to get our strength in the ecosystem. We've been fortunate enough to be able to survive some bear markets and then raise capital from well-known investors like Mark Cuban, very legendary fintech and SaaS-based investors, and then really great crypto investors as well. Um, I know we talked offline that we have a mutual friend who's an investor in the business. 
So we've been very fortunate to have really great people involved in the business, put together like a very strong presence on the retail side. And that strong presence on the retail side has opened up other opportunities for us, largely on the government side and on the enterprise side. And on the enterprise side, there's a few other platforms in the space that have focused primarily on enterprise and don't have a retail offering. But as cryptos continue to get more difficult and more advanced, those offerings have largely been able to kind of fall short. But what I mean by that is some of our enterprise clients, they're using multiple different blockchains. They're staking validation services, they're node validation services, they're companies that accept payments, they're NFT companies that are selling NFTs. And a lot of the enterprise side, because the enterprise side wasn't focused on the rest of the market, didn't innovate. And because we were focused on retail, we had to be able to innovate. So we support over 400 different exchanges, 10,000 different token types, 50 different blockchains, 40 different DeFi protocols, and NFTs. And because of that robustness of our platform, we were able to go into these enterprises and say, hey, you need a solution for Solana and AVAX and ETH and Bitcoin, and you need to be able to track income in addition to capital gains. So we're able to kind of bundle in this like really strong retail offering to enterprise. And then on the government side, very similar. We saw the writing on the wall that governments were not going to ignore this. We saw that the infrastructure bill was starting to come out. And really, we're fortunate enough to have the ability to pitch the IRS about 18 to 24 months ago on a sole source criminal investigation contract. We were able to build separate software from the Zenledger retail platform and sell that directly to the IRS to help them investigate and understand the forensic and financial analysis of crypto. And what I mean by that is you have platforms like Chainalysis and Elliptic and CypherTrace that are more like blockchain analytics. And most of them are very successful and have contracts with state, federal, international agencies. We're more on the financial forensic side. So what does John Doe owe? How can we prove that he owes that? And then how can we look at the activity? And a lot of our IP and AL and ML that we've built on the retail side has been able to be packaged and sold to the IRS, which helps them investigate these users. So in long story short, the focus of our business when we first started was in retail. And we've used the strength of our retail positioning to be able to put our flag in the ground on the enterprise and government side. As I listen to that, we talked earlier about Etherscan and just downloading it. The competitive advantage, it's not just like anyone could just download Etherscan because you might have been at Coinbase, you might have then moved stuff over to MetaMask. So that would be on your Etherscan, but then you move some assets to BlockFi. So as a retail participant, it seems to me some decent advice would be to know all of the things you've interacted with so that you could use one of these software platforms to help you aggregate it, if that's accurate. Yeah, you got it. I mean, that's the question that we get all the time from people. It's like, do I really need to like have a journal and a notebook and write down every single transaction that I've ever made? And you don't. That's essentially what the software does for you. What you do need to be aware of is what are the sources that you've used and making sure that you have all those sources in from day zero to today. Essentially, what you need to be worried about is, okay, in 2020, I used Coinbase and, and Gemini and FTX, and I used a ledger and a treasure. And then in 2021, I wanted to get more into DeFi. So I opened up a rainbow wallet and a MetaMask. And then I also used Binance US. As long as you have like an understanding of the sources, the software is going to do all the rest for you. We're going to aggregate all the information from each source, bundle that into your crypto tax reports, and file that. And one thing to be mindful of there, and questions that we get all the time, is on... Do I need to report old things for this year? And you absolutely do. Whether you go with Zenledger or another software, you need to make sure that you're importing all your transactions from day one through today, because that's going to allow us to track your cost basis, your flow of funds, and then your gains and losses according to your accounting method. But what I mean by that is, let's say in 2021, you only used a MetaMask and Binance, but in 2017, you bought all your initial Bitcoin and Ethereum off of Coinbase. You can't ignore all the stuff that happened in the previous year just because it's only 2021. We need all that data. 
the benefit of the platform is that you can just buy whatever years you want. So that doesn't mean you need to go ahead and buy 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 2021, unless you haven't filed. We'd obviously recommend making sure you file. Or if you use another software and, and you wanted to see you know, a little bit more accurate results, then you can reamend it and file and things like that. So those are two things to be mindful of is, is one, whether you're just looking for this year's reports, you need to report everything from day one. And then two, to be aware of, you just need to really focus on the sources and not necessarily the transactions. Dan, this has been a really interesting conversation. We try to end these episodes with a similar question. And so as a builder now, what are you most focused and excited about building for the next six months? And then to follow that, what are you most excited to see built over the next 10 years? I was always hoping that we get the Patrick question of what's the nicest thing someone's done for you. Been a big fan of best like the best for a long time and always love those answers. But I'm excited to be part of the new wave. But with us, what we talked about on the retail side is what we need to do to continue to stay ahead is really focus on what's gotten us to this point. And that's largely providing immense amounts of integrations, customer support, pricing, and then just having really great connections in the industry. So for us, building to the next six months, the next couple months for us is really looking at other layer ones and then also NFTs across other blockchains as well. So right now, we largely support Ethereum-based NFTs. And that was a calculated decision about a year ago when we started to build NFTs because 99% of the market share was, was really there. So over the next two weeks, we'll have support for Solana and AVAX. And the first two weeks of January, we'll have support for Terra, Luna, and Phantom. And then we'll continue to add new integrations for NFTs that are on Solana or on Tezos or on Binance Smart Chain or things like that. So we're really, really excited about that. On the enterprise side, what we've been really excited about is the rise of a lot of Web2 companies that are getting into this space and looking for accounting and tax help. We had calls with companies this week, can't disclose a name, but there are Fortune 50 companies that are looking at Nike and Adidas and Budweiser and these these brands that have really kind of leaned in heavy into Web3 and want to have an NFT launch and want to make sure that when they launch this NFT, that they can account for the income from there. So the enterprise side is starting to really pick up. Then on the government side, I think what we're building for is this new regime. We're seeing a mandate to collect $30 billion in crypto tax revenue over the next 18 months. We're seeing $80 billion in new funding for the IRS, and that's going to go into software and human capital. And we're seeing a, a largely collective effort to really minimize the lapse in crypto tax processing. And I think that's what's exciting for us as builders is that if you look at crypto tax today, let's say we're at a 0.1 compliant rate, even going to a 1% compliance rate is a 10x for us. Very small movements can create huge windfalls for us. So what we're building for is just those buckets of our clients on the retail side, the enterprise side, and then on the government side, and then on the retail side, what happens after crypto tax and accounting? And for us, that's what we're always thinking of. The IP around crypto tax and accounting is so valuable. When you look at companies like Coinbase and Binance and Uniswap and OpenSea, like they all have very siloed views into the customer data. When you think about our platform, you are literally ingesting every single exchange account and every single wallet answer that you've ever used, every exchange, every transaction that's ever occurred in between. And you're cleaning that up because you're filing your taxes. So we can see everything you've ever done. So it's very easy for us to start to add on ancillary products and become kind of like a Fidelity-like brokerage model where we have an investor center. We have resources and research and can partner with like Masari and Delphi Digital on like really great reporting. We can start to add trade execution directly into the platform. So like the core of accounting and, and Tax IP allows us to continue to look at other areas of crypto and have this like all-in-one platform where you have accounting and tax, portfolio management, research, execution, fidelity, like sweep. So I could go on all day and for what we're excited about, but for us, we're excited to have really great investors, really great 
teammates and really great employees and really great partners will allow us to continue to build for the next six months and next six years, hopefully. Well, Dan, thank you for your time. This has been great. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 